I'm not 28. I'm, it's young. And maybe you're just way ahead of me in maturity. But I was not mature at 28. I remember it was one of the first jobs that I had taken. And this happened to be in vocational ministry. There's, there's other jobs that I had done uh, in construction and so forth, growing up in tile and all that kind of world. But, but ministry life was, and ministry work was very new to me at that age. It was about my second position moving away from the church that had shown me all kinds of grace and all kinds of love and allowed me to spread my wings and fly and, um, and just grow and mature and experience the safety of, of this amazing Christian community and, and all that to, to going out on my own in this, this working for someone that I didn't know. So in vocational ministry, it's much like other jobs with some additional different factors a part of it, but still you have an employer and there is employer-employee relationship and in the midst of all that stuff, which we all experience. But in my younger days, I remember moments when I did not act as mature as I ought to. I remember seasons of that one, of one particular job in, particular, in, in that setting, in that time, when I would talk about maybe the decisions or the leadership that I didn't like from my boss with one of my interns, because I didn't like the decision or how I was leading or just the philosophy, uh, whatever it was, and I would have a disagreement because at 28 I was so wise. And so I look back on that with some disappointment and with some shame as a Christian man because on one hand, I'm betraying an employer, but I'm also sinning against Jesus, or was sinning against Jesus. As I was not only like maybe gossiping or slandering at the, at best, maybe a little gossipy. At worst, probably divisive. Titus chapter 3 tells us in scripture, we usually glide right over this, we forget it in Christian circles, we don't think it's important most of the time. It says, as for a divisive person, warn him once, twice, and then have nothing to do with him. That's what the Bible says. So you get the sense that unity of God's people is a rather important thing among God's people to God. It's so important that in John chapter 17, Jesus prays on behalf of his elect saints that will come, that are, are present and are to come, and he prays for their unity. In fact, it's so interesting that you now can rest in the fact that Jesus himself had prayed for your unity even now, knowing that it would be challenged over and over again. And so as I ponder my own life and my own experience, I remember where I had even betrayed another person. But the crazy thing as I ponder those things is I betrayed not only like another person, but I was betraying Jesus himself. Isn't there so many ways in our life where we sin and betray Jesus? And yet we do it in little ways and we do it in massive ways all the time. I thank God for the cross, but this happens. In the passage that we will be considering this morning in Matthew chapter 26, 1 through 16, you can turn if you like. Matthew 26, 1 through 16, we will see a massive contrast between two different people. A woman who will esteem and honor Jesus massively, 
And Judas, who will not honor or esteem Jesus, but will actually head down the road of betraying Jesus. These two different people. One, this woman, who, as it turns out, if we look at other scripture, we will see that it's Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of, of Lazarus, who will honor and esteem him, and the other being Judas, Iscariot, the very one that we know about to this day, when we refer to betrayal, the words that we use in circles, in culture, is, are you being a Judas? It is such a hallmark of what it means to betray someone that it often is used as the prototype of what it means to betray someone. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 26, 1 through 16, we'll be looking at that text this morning. The setting that Jesus is stepping into is so fascinating to me. Of all the particular weeks in history, Jesus, or in the year that Jesus could be, could be stepping into where he is actually going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to die. Of all the days, of all the weeks, he steps into this during the time of the Passover. Let us remind ourselves just for a few moments of what was going on with the people in his particular setting and context with this whole issue of the Passover. You see, the Passover memorializes the passing over of the people of God by God. When you look at the text of Scripture in the Exodus, we see God's rescue plan put on display for all the Scripture and all the world. He's going to rescue his chosen people out from under the hand of the Egyptians don't be afraid if you have any Egyptian history. I want you to know that Egyptians get saved as well. But in this particular setting and in this particular time, it was the Egyptian people and the Pharaoh who was holding God's people that he was rescuing um, enslaved. And God raises up Moses, this leader of God's people, who was going to cry out to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go over and over and over. And then we know a bit of the story, but essentially he's extremely and horrifically stubborn and unwilling to let them go. And God is finally going to plague them. Ten, not once, not twice, not three times, but, like, but ten different horrific plagues where finally um, Pharaoh is going to let God's people go, at least sort of, at least initially. Now what God does is he comes to his people and to his leader Moses and he says, you're going to assemble the people of God and tell them that how I'm going to pass over them. Look, I'm going to strike um, the Egyptians by killing their firstborn, is what God says. But I will not strike yours, but you have to do what I command. Assemble the people and tell them that you are to take a lamb and you're going to kill it. And then the people in the household, you're going to participate in this meal and you're going to take the blood from that lamb and you're going to put it on the doorpost and you're going to put it on the, it's called the lentil or the top, essentially the door area. You're going to put this blood on there. And then when I, the Lord, see that blood, I'm going to pass over that house. And the places where I do not see that house, I'm going to strike dead the firstborn animal and I'm going to strike dead the firstborn of those people. I'm going to kill them. Now, before your heart bleeds too much over the loss of the firstborn of these people, remember, number one, all of humanity deserves to be stricken down. 
And we will remind us of that constantly. But remember this, that Pharaoh was killing the firstborn of God's people. Do you know the story of Moses, how they hid him? The reason Moses is alive, because they hid him and concealed him so that the Pharaoh would not kill him. Because he was killing the, the boy children of the people of God. And then God comes and he strikes the firstborn of theirs. And so God passes over. And then you fast forward all this time when they are, they are told to, in obedience, to celebrate, to celebrate, to remember God's Passover, passing over them, but striking down these others. And Jesus lands in this setting where the Passover is going to be happening. This means a few things. Let's make a couple of observations. This is going to be a really crowded season of the year. Pilgrims are going to be coming from everywhere. It's a lot of people gathered celebrate the Passover. All kinds of people. They're assembled massively. But here is the amazing thing. They're not only assembled. They're not only there in this, in this city, in this, in this region to celebrate the Passover, but they are celebrating God's rescue plan through a lamb. And here we have the lamb of God himself coming who is going to be the sacrifice for his people. And that is the imagery that we are to have, brothers and sisters. That even though today as I unfold this horrible betrayal that happens in our midst and by us and through us all the time in big ways and in small ways, I want you to remember that first and foremost that we have a Jesus who is the Passover, he, the Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. This is what John the Baptist cries out when he gets on the scene and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is coming to die and he is the lamb of God. Listen to this word of God. In verse 1, it says this. Chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name it's Caiaphas. And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. They want to do it secretly. Why do they want to do it secretly? And kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. I just want to make a couple of observations. A couple of details that I think are just interesting. One, of the, one is, historically, this shows us this is an event that's rather large. People, there's a lot of people in the city, which tells me there's a lot of witnesses. You know, it's always interesting that one of the first uh, controversies in Jesus' day when he is crucified and dies and raises from the grave is the, is the kind of controversy that people try to make up. I, they, they, people did not try to say that Jesus didn't die. Although we know historically people would come along the way who would try to argue that maybe Jesus didn't die. You have all these people who could witness an actual death. But in Jesus' day, the first controversy is not that he didn't die. The controversy is, well, the disciples would have stole his body to make it look like he rose from the grave. So I just find that interesting. The other thing that we can observe is this. There's this person named Caiaphas who's the high priest. And I find that fascinating, just on a detail that Matthew is letting us know historically. I didn't know this until I was reminded of this uh, again, but I remember hearing this in seminary and then just reading it. If you, in your ESV study Bible and some other commentaries, you'll see that Caiaphas, this interesting guy, 
um, you know, like, how would you know that he exists? And there's some others that would mention, some historians that would mention. But, but the, one of the cool things is that we find that uh, in about 1991 or so, some archaeologists came across this, I think it's called an esophagus. Let's just call it, let's call it a, uh, um, let's call it a burial box. Now, you'd have to be pretty wealthy to, to be, have your bones reburied in, in the ancient world because people ain't going to do that for us poor people. And anyway, they found this, this burial box, and it said, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. And they're like, behold, look, this guy actually existed. So if you want to deny writings, here's actually hard evidence from archaeologists that this person was there. And they found it there by the holy city. So they plot together to kill him by stealth. So remember this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we're going to need to be reminded of that in terms of what is to come next. Now remember, we're going to see this massive contrast between two different people. One is a woman who is Mary, who is not revealed in the text. So listen, it says this. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in verse 6, in the house of Simon the leper. Notice Jesus is hanging out with the lowly. We don't completely know who he is. Is he the parents of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus? I don't know. It's just probably someone that he had healed, but he's associating consistently with the lowly and the weak and the sick. Probably someone he had healed. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she, she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Do you see that? Saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with me, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Some things I want you to notice here. Jesus esteems what she does. But if we back up, I want you to notice how the disciples respond. The Bible tells us that they were indignant about what she had done. And they're just like, why is this so wasteful? What does this tell us? Well, Matthew tells us that this was very expensive, doesn't he? He doesn't tell us how much it is. He just says it's very expensive. An evidence of how expensive it is is the response of the disciples, isn't it? They are like, what in the world? This is a lot of money. This could have taken care of a lot of poor. Now, if you are an astute student and you read the Gospel of John, you will see some other details that take place in this whole setting. And that is one of the guys leading the charge with this is none other than Judas Iscariot. And what John tells us is that John, John tells us that Judas did not have a concern for the poor, but he loved money. And what he goes on to say is that he used to help himself. He was in charge of the, the money for the disciples, and he used to help himself to the money. So his real motive was that he loved money. But the disciples are indignant as well, so they don't completely get it. So, like, how much was it? Now, when you read the Gospel of John, what you, you get a, a sense of how much it, it actually is. And it's, let's just call it about a year's worth of expense. 
So if you bought some perfume that would cost a year's worth of money for you and your three-year-old came out of the living room with it and started like waving it around, you might become, I don't know, like indignant or upset at the very least, possibly. If you were at a really expensive restaurant and you're the owner of that restaurant and they're serving these $100 dishes, I realize none of us have been to those places. No, we have. So maybe once or twice in your life. And you're the owner of that restaurant and you see your servers like dump an entire tray of where, you, where they're serving 10 people. I think that person might experience some anger or some outrage. The disciples are outraged because of how expensive it is. What does this tell us about what she is doing? This woman who is identified as Mary in the Gospel of John, for whatever reason, Matthew doesn't identify her. He just says this, this woman. Because we're to see something of value about what she's doing. What she is doing is, what's going on display is her immense value in Jesus. She is willing to spend more than a year's worth of pay to prepare him for burial. She values him so much that she would give that entire expense. What would it mean for someone in the first century? What would it mean for a woman in the first century? Is she married? Is she not married? What would it mean for her to trust the Lord in covering her expenses as she works and labors and so forth? She has taken a massive portion of what she has. I don't know what percentage. Who knows? Maybe almost all of it. Maybe this was how she made her living. Maybe she sold a bit of that so that she could make her living. She manufactured it. I, I, I don't know. The scripture doesn't say it. But what we know that is it is really expensive. And what it tells us is that she values Jesus above all things. And the question for us today is how much do we value Jesus? And how does that get displayed in our lives? There's something really powerful, and Jesus calls it beautiful with what she does because she values Jesus above all other things. She is willing to take this, this nard, this expensive oil, and pour it on him. And when people are indignant, Jesus stops everyone and says, no, no, no. Hey, look, the poor you will have with you always. It's not going away. But me, you do not have me with me. She has done this, she has done this beautiful thing, and this story is going to be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed. From then to present to as long, until Christ returns, we will be reminded of the beautiful thing that she has done to prepare him for his burial. He, he has come to die. The sacrificial lamb has come to die and pay for, this, for sinners like us. And the question for us becomes, do we value Jesus above everything else? Now in contrast to this is Judas. How does Jesus, Judas feel? What is Judas thinking? The scriptures tell us that the disciples had become indignant at what she has done. Jesus, Judas, excuse me, Judas has come to a place where he is sick and tired of his leader. He doesn't think right. His philosophy is not right. He does these weird things. He praises things that where we could have used money in the right way. And then the following verses happen. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Notice Matthew is pointing out, number one, 
who is deceiving Jesus? Or who is the turncoat? Who is the betrayer? And it is clearly not the other disciples, although they were indignant as well. It is Judas. Notice also that he is asking what, for what he can get. You see, in John's gospel, he reminds us that what Judas really loved was money. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us, what are the ways in which we betray Jesus? And for how much are we willing to betray Jesus? Look at what happens here. So he is asking what you will give him. What will you give me if I betray Jesus? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from, the moment he, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The text begins with telling us that he has come over and he, during the Passover and he is going to die. The established, the people with authority are seeking to arrest him in stealth so that they could kill him. And now they have someone from among their own that they did not recruit who has shown up and is going to sh- deliver him on a platter. Now one of the things that we see by looking at the comparison of the both is that this whole issue of the 30 pieces. Now we can't fully understand or know how much it is, but we do know this. Scholars would agree that it's significantly much less, about a week's worth of wage or so. Now, it's not like it's a small amount. Maybe it's even perhaps even a little bit more. But it is radically smaller than the amount that Mary has poured out on him. Her esteem of him is massively bigger. And his is much smaller. And I would argue this, that I have betrayed Jesus for much less. And perhaps you have as well. If not this year, if not this week, perhaps even today. But I want to remind us of the good news of the gospel, that we have a Jesus who came and who died on the cross, so that even though that we do not live the life that we should live, that Jesus lived the perfect life that we don't live, and he died the death that we deserve. And brothers and sisters, you cannot walk away from here not knowing the good news of the gospel who paid for you, that even though you betray, you and I betray Jesus by our sins, We have betrayed him, we do betray him, and we will betray him with our sin. Whether it is idolatry or mistreating an employer or employee or whatever. Sins and sin betrays Jesus. And so I ask us, what do we love more? How much do we love Jesus? I want to show us just a couple of ways in which I know that we all commonly, possibly struggle with when it comes to our love of God and how we betray him or what sins come out because of it. I told you earlier that one of the things that I've done in my own life is is betray a fellow employer, betray a a boss, betray this other pastor by speaking ill of him. We betray others. Have we not all experienced being betrayed at some point in our lives? Do we not know how, how horrible and how heinous it is? And yet, we betray Jesus himself when we sin. So what are the ways in which we betray Jesus? Instead of addressing some of the most obvious, heinous sins that take place, let's address some of the things that are just kind of, that have some potential gray area. 
In the culture and in the time that we live in, one of the hardest things to do is actually to be consistently present among the people of God. What I'm saying is that in the Christian world uh, of our age and of our day, uh, a walk with Jesus in which we are gathering, consistently gathering together as the people of God is not valued among many Christians in the setting in which we live. Am I right? Are you following? Now, I'm talking to a bunch of people who are actually in church right now. But every one of us faces it, and we're in a setting where it's very difficult, where it is not esteemed and it is not valued. Now, there are, I'm not saying there are not reasons to actually miss attending or gathering of the saints. There are. I mean, I mean, some of you have perhaps worked in a retail setting where you are required to work certain days of the week. You cannot get it. It's part of your livelihood. Or possibly some of you are, there's, there's nurses in our church. There's been police officers in our church. There's military personnel. They, they will require you of what they will require you. And it will be, it's a unique challenge for some of those people. But here's the thing. Not the, entire, the entire population is not retail police or nurses. I don't know what the population is. I myself have worked in retail. I know what it's like to have a boss who says, hey, no, you have to be here Sunday and, and work through the whole, all the questions and the issues surrounding that when you're trying to provide for your family. What I want, to do, I want to do is point out that Jesus, that the scriptures require us to actually to elevate, to value him in such a way that we are not neglecting the gathering of the saints. For example, how about Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were, were being done through the, the apostles. And all who believed were together and all, had all things in common. Should I show us the scripture that calls us to gathering to people? How about, how about Hebrews chapter 10? Well, the scripture tells us this. Let us, in verse 22 of chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith which our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. While you see the day draw near. We live in a time, we live in a setting, we live in a culture where the gathering, where the continual, consistent gathering of the saints is not important. It is not lifted up. And I would argue that the, it is highly possible that the reason that is is because Jesus himself is not esteemed highly enough. And that we have other loves. And we have competing loves. And all of us, and here's the thing, every single one of us does. And you know what? I'm telling you, I want you to hear this again. Like I have personally betrayed Jesus for much less than 30 pieces of silver. Haven't you? Let's address one of the other areas. Now look, I, look let me just go back and just say this. Look, hey, look, our... There's questions that we can run into, like, hey, man, is, isn't it okay to, to have our kids involved with sports? And what about on a Sunday? And Christians are going to wrestle with this question. 
Some of us, we're going to rate, you guys are, we have, Caden and Catherine are having a baby right now. I'm waiting for the text when the baby's going like, to show up. They texted me early in the morning. Her water broke. They said, we could tell you, by the way, so you could pray for Catherine and Caden. They're having a baby uh, probably right now. Maybe they did a while ago. Maybe it's all going on. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked at my phone. Some of you have. Maybe they've had the baby. But all that to say, but we're, we are, our, our church is at a particular age where babies are going to show up. I don't know how that happens or how you know how that how it goes on, but that's going to happen for, because people get married. And you're going to have all these questions that arise. You know, you have questions like, well, hey, look, is it okay to, to miss uh, church on Sunday and go to T-ball or, or whatever? Now, those of you that know me pretty well know that there is a lot of freedom and liberty in me. Those of you who don't know me well probably don't know that. And we can have conversations about that. But let me, let me tell you this. You're going to ask the question, and I don't want you to hear me say in my, my discussion about how important it is to not neglect the, the gathering of the saints and the worship of, of the living God of heaven and, and to rest and Sabbath rightly, to hear me say that you could never go to a ball game with your kid. What I'm saying is that you have to wrestle with the question of consistency in your own life of how much you, wanna, you should be a part of a gathering with the rest of the saints. Because if, you're, if you are missing, if you are like not present among the people of God, if you're only present like once or twice a year or a few times perhaps, I would say you're neglecting the worship and Sabbath of the Lord. And you have to wrestle with the question. Is it possible to enjoy some game with our kids and our youth on a Sunday? Dude, absolutely. I think we have that freedom. But you also, as a family, have to work through what that's going to look like and how much you're willing to say no to. Some of you have heard of the famous athlete named Eric Little. Eric Little, I think, was Scottish. He's Presbyterian. And he was a missionary. He's like rock-solid dude from like 100 years ago. He was amazing. The story, Chariots of Fire, is based on, on this, this really interesting thing that took place. You see, Eric Little was, a, was an Olympic athlete. He was a runner. And I believe his race was the 100-yard dash. And... On Olympic Sunday, he was going to be required to run that race, but he had a strong conviction of Sabbath, and so he wasn't going to do his race. He was actually going to be in worship with other Christians, and so he did not do his race, and the interesting story about him is uh, I don't believe he burdened a bunch of other people. He just, like, wasn't going to do it. He couldn't do it. But he was such an amazing athlete, they put him in the open 400. For those of you that know that, that's one time around the track as fast as you can. Like the 100 is just like 100 yards, like super easy. I could do that. I could win it tomorrow. But the 400 is like one time around the entire track. It's like, it's like full blast. It's super, super hard. And he, that wasn't even his event, and he won it on a day that wasn't the Sabbath. Man, it's an amazing example of a dude who says, I want to walk with Jesus like, I, my, my principles and my convictions is that I'm, I'm with the people of God and I'm willing to lay down this Olympic gold medal in the event that I'm really good at because I want to be part of that. Now, hey, look, would it be sin for a Christian to run that event on that Sunday, in my opinion? No, I, I don't think so. You can. I think you'd have freedom in Christ to do it. I tell you that story to point out, like, here's a guy who probably did not miss much, probably any Sunday. <laughs> I think we have the freedom to, to do that 
But I think we need, as a culture, need to, we need to wrestle and work through a culture of what it means to, to esteem Jesus so much that we would just pour out that alabaster of oil on him that's worth a year's worth of wage. Is Jesus more precious to you than the gold medal? That's the question that kind of comes our way. There is another way where we, where we have struggled, where me personally, I've struggled with, with honoring Jesus and not betraying Jesus. And that would be the whole issue of not, not just attendance of being among God's people, but it would be the whole issue of generosity in the church. Now, I'm not going to do an extensive teaching on this, but I just want to address this just, just very briefly to address some of the issues related to giving. You know, Dr. Don Sanukian a couple weeks ago was here, and he was, he was addressing it in, in a really powerful, really meaningful, cool, helpful way. But I would just say this. I'm going to tell you about my own failure in my own life where I've messed up in this. I, I, with sadness in my heart and with shame, even though you see a smile, I can say that as, a, as an earlier Christian and even not that long ago, that there were many ways in which I neglected generosity and did not tithe as I ought to have. When I look at my own, on my own life and how, what we did as a family, my, my wife and I both would agree, like, man, we, we just were not generous the way God calls us to. And can I tell you one of the excuses we had? Uh, one of them would be like the whole notion that I heard from another pastor of grace giving, which is super weak. An- another excuse I had was my employer doesn't pay me enough. That was my excuse for not, for not giving generously. My employer doesn't pay me enough, which although was true, but maybe the issue wasn't merely that they didn't pay me enough, but that I was not very generous Maybe the bigger issue was that I was not generous. Now, some would, would wrestle with the whole issue. Do we type 10%? Is it gross? Is it, is, it, uh, is it net? You know, and raise the question of, hey, what if we live, what if we live in a socialistic society where we're, we're taxed 90%? Well, let me, just, let me tell you something. We don't live in a socialistic society where you're taxed 20, 90% of your income. We are not taxed like that at this point. So although there is freedom in this particular way, in this particular issue of giving and being generous with our money and what we do with it, I, one, number, one, number one, I think we need to remember that our money is not our money, but it's the Lord's money. The Lord has given me my, my, my time, my abilities, and my treasure itself. I could not do the things I do without the talents that he has given, bestowed on us. A lot of things we don't do because we're fearful. Instead of fearing God, we fear man and we don't do things. I mean, to be quite honest, I bet you this, we could probably, uh, we could do better, our vocation could be better, even though work is totally cursed. If we just were, if we would like overcome fear, if fear is a real thing, and trust God and say, Lord, I want to use my talents to your glory. So then we ask ourselves, like, hey, look, how, how do I, when am, when am I not generous? And does the scripture even like address this whole issue of, like, of giving generously? And God says this in Malachi chapter 3, listen to this. For I, in chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, uh, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions, the Lord says. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me with the whole, na- the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. When this issue comes up in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew itself, in chapter, in chapter 23, there's an interesting thing that takes place. Jesus is condemning, he's woeing the religious establishment of his day. Chapter 23, verse 23. He calls them to the carpet that they are actually very interested in being very detailed in their tithe. So much so that they would, they would tithe even their herbs. They're really the smallest of things. They would, tithe all, they would go all the way down to that. And therefore shame everyone around them who wasn't being that nitpicky. But... What you will see Jesus say is you should have done this and not neglected these more important things. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So he says you should do this, but you have neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, Jesus says, without neglecting the others. To my shame, I could tell you, as a fellow Christian with uh, my brothers and sisters, there have been plenty of days in my life when I have not been as generous as God has called me to. Um, And there could be a whole sermon on that. But I would just, for now, just tell you this. Most scholars agree that we as Christians should should certainly be generous. And you can see that in the Corinthians. If you just read Corinthians, you will see that. You will see that in the Gospels. You will certainly see that in the Old Testament. All from from cover to cover, generosity really matters. It's a real test of what we really love. Jesus even says, where your heart is, your treasure will be also, right? So if we spend a lot on nard and we're willing to give it all up and pour it on Jesus, man, I mean, we value Jesus over the stuff. If we're willing to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, it's because we really don't value him very much. When I sin against the God of the universe, it is because I value something else more than I do Jesus himself. But I want you to be reminded again that the Lamb of God has come to die for sinners such as us. So don't merely stand or sit under the weight of judgment, but know that Jesus was a curse so that you and I do not have to be a curse. That Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He is the Passover lamb. He has come to this moment of all the moments in time. He shows up during this week when everyone is celebrating the Passover of God. And yet, behold, the Passover lamb himself, Jesus, who is the Christ. But when I sin against him, when I betray him for much less, I do so because I value other things more than him. So when it comes to generosity... And that question of generosity, because we, we, struggle, we struggle with, uh, with you know, like, like not being present in local church. And we struggle with our money because we feel like our money is ours and not the Lord's. And we struggle with discussions of how much. And I, and I would say, hey, you know, a great place to start as a household, and this will be, it, it will challenge you. It will challenge you. But I would say start with 10% and have the discussion as a family and a, and a couple and, and I don't want to be legalistic about it. I want to say, like, you, you should, to, like, wrestle with it. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to confess for our own household. We just, like, off the top, we just say 10%. We just do that. We just, boom, just do it. 
gross, 10%. And you know, there's times when like life is like crazy and hard and, and we're, we're, uh, we're, we're like, we might soften up. But the faith part is like, well, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I love you more than my money. And I know that you provide. And you've given me the talent and the time and the treasure to do what I need to do. You've provided, you give me the opportunity to work even in a cursed world. Now, most scholars would agree, like, that when they talk about this whole issue, now I'm telling you there could be an entire sermon on it. You could go do a deep dive and have a great discussion that good Christian folk disagree on this. But if, if for those that we're, we call to eldership at branches, we're going to require generosity on a high level of them because we as elders have to lead the way in every way, including generosity, in our character, in our calling, and our generosity. Because you know what? The people of God will not follow someone who's not generous. Period. So we want you to know that. But look, as you struggle through that and you read Corinthians and you try to work through how much and, and what you have and whether or not you don't make enough and all that other stuff, what God is, what calls you to do is to be generous. It should be sacrificial. And it should be ongoing or consistent, something that you work through and you, and you plan on. It isn't merely, you know what, I have a dollar in my pocket. As Christians, when you read Corinthians, you see a plan from every Christian that Paul is calling to, to be generous to the mission. Because we have a mission. And wouldn't you give everything for the mission until he comes? Wouldn't you pour that nard out on Jesus because you value him above all things? So brothers and sisters, man, the challenge I have for us this morning is not merely that we give super generously but that we would see Jesus as infinitely more valuable than anything in our lives. Because I'll tell you the things that tempt me, like money, sex, power, and I know it tempts you as well. It tempts every human being. It just depends on what your thing is. Which one of those three is your potential idol? Like we just, we go, we go tap that idol and man, you, you will lose your mind. You might be okay with confessing your sin about your idolatry of money, but not about sex. Or you're cool talking about your idolatry of sex, but oh man, you touch money and you'll light the place on fire. So brothers and sisters, esteem Jesus above and value him above all other things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that for your for your help with our people, Lord, that we be a people that is radically on mission to reach the lost world around us with all our hearts. I pray that we would be a people that are, that are generous, that are sacrificial and devoted to you, Lord, and that, we, that you would enable us and free us to rest in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.